Hi everyone and welcome to the Allplane podcast where we talk with the movers and shakers that are redefining the future of commercial aviation. As usual, before we start, I would like to remind you that all previous episodes of this podcast as well as many other aviation stories are available on the Allplane website. That's allplane.tv, A-L-L-P-L-A-N-E.tv. In this podcast, we have often talked about eVTOLs and advanced air mobility. We have had here some of the most prominent entrepreneurs and visionaries, I think it's fair to call them visionaries, of this new industry. But one aspect of the upcoming eVTOL revolution that we haven't talked nearly as much about is that of vertiports. Vertiports are, to say it plainly, a bit like airports, but for eVTOLs. And just as the airport experience is an essential component of air travel, vertiports are expected to be a key element as well of the advanced air mobility experience. But how exactly? Is boarding an eVTOL going to be more like going to the airport? Or is it going to be more like hailing a taxi ride on the street or taking the underground or the urban bus? There's still so much that we don't know about the advanced air mobility experience. And of course, the rules and regulations will play a major role in shaping how all of this comes into being in different jurisdictions and will most likely result in an unequal development of advanced air mobility across countries and cities, as well as different timeframes for the adoption of this new technology. So to talk about all this, Today here on the podcast, we've got Addison Farrell. Addison is the Director of Infrastructure and Head of the Americas at Skyports, one of the world's leading vertiport development companies. Before joining Skyports, Addison worked for blue chip companies such as GE Aerospace, the maker of aircraft engines, and McKinsey, the world famous consultancy firm. And today, Addison oversees the development of pioneering vertiport projects all over the world, together with some of the major players in this space. Just to give you some examples, some prominent projects where Skyports has been involved include the 2024 Paris Olympics or Dubai's futuristic air mobility vision. So tune in for a fascinating glimpse of the advanced air mobility experience of the future. And let me welcome Addison to the podcast. Hello, Addison. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Great to have you here on the podcast. You're joining us from Boston, right? Yes, that's correct. Great city. Um, yeah, you are the director of infrastructure at Skyports, which is a global leader in the development of Vertiports, a piece of infrastructure that is expected to play a major role in shaping this new era of uh, advanced air mobility that is coming to us, 2025, 26, 27. There's plenty of eVTOL developers out there that are working on their certifications and some are planning to to launch services really soon. The key question here is, we talk a lot about the aircraft. Uh, we've got a few eVTOL developers here on the podcast, but I think there is not that much information about how the experience is going to be on the ground and how are we going to access those advanced air mobility services? So that's why I think it's it's very important to to have you here today so that you can share some insights about this. But first of all, like like every guest in the podcast, I would like to ask you to introduce yourself and to tell us a little bit more about who you are and, and what's your role at Skyports and, and also a bit about your, your previous background and how you ended up in this in this very interesting industry. Yeah, absolutely. Well, th- thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed this this opportunity. Yeah, I 
I really, I began my career in aerospace and have followed that that passion throughout. So what I do now as director of infrastructure, I, I lead Skyport's um, infrastructure business. And I, I can speak more about uh, what, what that means, but it's a global remit. I'm, I'm based here in the US, as you said. So I think more, more of a hands-on role here in our US market, but involved uh, globally in, in the various markets we're in, and as, as well as the, the product development that we do. As I mentioned, I started in aerospace. So I, I started as a design engineer at GE Aviation in their in their Cincinnati headquarters uh, doing uh, mechanical design for jet engines, uh, military and commercial, diff- different parts of the engine. So it was really uh, fascinating. Uh, it's, it's a fascinating product. It's a fascinating business uh, as well. Uh, really key to driving the, the growth of aerospace globally, even if you were to just take the perspective of uh, efficiency and, and green initiatives, it's, it's actually, it's quite remarkable how far um, that that industry, the that product, the, the jet engine has come in the past. Yeah, uh, if I may add yeah. a note here, um, there's uh, some uh, very interesting documentaries. I think they are on YouTube. I, mean, I don't remember the title exactly, but it's easy to Google them about how the jet engines are made. And it's really fascinating the um, amount of uh, intricacy that goes into those engines, the sophistication of the mechanisms and the materials and everything, how it's designed. That's really amazing, like mind-blowing. Yeah. So uh, I'll, I'll, I'll try to find them and, and I will post them on the podcast notes because I think that's, that's something that anyone that's interested in aviation should, should be, should be mm-hmm. watching those. Uh, amazing. A- anyway, sorry, I interrupted you here. Absolutely. So I'll, I'll give you. <laughs> I'll, no, I'll it's all right. You. I'm yeah. biased. I'm biased. And I, I agree. Uh, it, was, it was a fascinating way to, to start my career. Uh, I think technically it's uh, uh, just such a, a cool product. It's a really interesting challenge. Uh, and it's an example of a lot of what you see in aerospace where it's uh, really advanced and leading edge has a massive impact on people around around the globe. And it's a very tightly coupled system. You, you change one small parameter in one part of the in- engine, maybe in the compressor, you, you change the number of stages and, and the compressor can have a massive impact on the, the entire system. Uh, that, that's that's a theme that we can talk about uh, with AAM as well, just you know, as, a, as an ecosystem, how, how it's very tightly coupled. So I had a great experience there at GE Aviation for a while, and, and while I while I really uh, enjoyed it, and was 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 very technical. I was I was looking to make make a bit of a pivot and, and take a, a slightly different role following that. So I, I went into um, consulting at McKinsey following that for for several years to to be less in the the technical details and, and more looking at a strategic and operational lens a business as a whole. Uh, I really touched uh, various uh, industrial type, type companies, both strategic and operational topics, but my emphasis was always on aerospace. It's always where. We had a partner, a McKinsey partner here on the podcast uh, a few months ago, uh, Robin Riddle, which, uh, right. who is very active actually in the in the um, advanced mobility space yeah. and has participated in the elaboration of some reports and some really interesting studies about this industry. So yeah. Robin's great. He's really a thought leader within, within yeah. AAM. Absolutely. So and now you are after McKinsey, you move on to Skyports. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Skyports is just for me. It was kind of the the perfect intersection of something that's really innovative. You know, it's that uh, industry passion that I have, and you know, frankly, the team that I I really liked. You know, Mm -hmm. it matters so much in the job that we do. So I Mm -hmm. I felt really fortunate to to come into 
you, you define yourself, Skyports, as a global leader in, in Vertiport development. I would say, let's start by Vertiport. A Vertiport would be like an airport for the advanced air mobility aircraft that are being developed. So that would be the eVTOLs, so what's popularly known as flying taxis, although that's a name that is not very popular in the, in the industry because it, mm-hmm. I, maybe it's a bit too simple to define it this way. But yeah. I think it's a, it's a very visual image that many people can, can yeah. understand very quickly. So you are developing this infrastructure, but what exactly is your business model? Because you are designers. Are you planning to operate them? Are you planning to invest directly? Tell us a bit more about Skyports and what's the role that you play in this um, new infrastructure, this new network of facilities that is designed to service this new industry. If the if it all deliver everything that's been promised, infrastructure, travel habits will change, etc. So what's your role in, in all this story? Yes, I, I first of all agree that vertiports are like, I mean, I guess you can think of them as miniature airports in, in urban landscapes or, or like heliports really, because we don't have runways, we have landing pads. But it's that it's that ground connection for the passenger or the cargo to to the aircraft that's that's flying. So in, in a simplistic term, it, it doesn't you don't need to think of it as much different than than that. Um, we can talk about the the complexities that that come along with it from a business model perspective. It's actually quite consistent with what we see elsewhere in, in aviation. We're talking about landing fees, uh, recharging fees now maybe electric charging as opposed to uh, jet a fuel, but fundamentally kind of the, the same idea, uh, hangerage, very light maintenance or, or cleaning and other, other ancillary fees to the operator of, of the aircraft itself, plus the non-aeronautical revenue uh, that, that you, that you can capture as that, that ground infrastructure provider. So all those things are entirely consistent with what you see elsewhere Mm-hmm. be it large hub airports or FBOs at, mm-hmm. at a, a smaller GA airport, quite quite consistent business model on, on the revenue side. Now, for, for Skyports, we're end-to-end in terms of what uh, what scope we cover. What We start all the way upstream at the network design and site selection within a given market, then move into the concept design, permitting, detailed design, construction, and ultimately the ongoing operation of the facility once it's been once, once there's a commercial launch um so that, that's what we think of we think of end to end so we're investing up front in all of that you know concept design through, through detail design as well as as well as the construction itself so we were very much like a a real estate developer in that sense you know we, we invest uh, a fair bit of capital up front and then the ongoing operation of it that that of course has operational costs as mm-hmm. as well so that's that's our that's our investment uh and, and then I, I mentioned our, our revenue stream uh, mm-hmm. being the, the landing fees and the like. So again, you know, quite quite consistent uh, with other parts of aviation. I think you're, you're a startup in a way, right? You, you were founded not long ago. Um... Yes, that's right. That's right. We were f- founded about five about five years ago in London uh, by, by a couple of our, our co-founders. You know, it was really, it, we were founded in response to the emerging AAM industry, to, to seeing mm-hmm. that, okay, we have this, this new technology that will allow electric flight and distributed electric propulsion should be far quieter and safer and more economical. And that, that opens up opportunities for more air taxi operations within dense urban areas. It was a, rec- a recognition early on from our founders, uh, Duncan Walker and Simon Morish. Well, there needs to be somewhere for those aircraft to land. Uh, and so, so they founded Skyports to, to d- develop those. Now, I'll, I'll admit, 
Duncan would admit too. Or early on, it was a little bit more of a, a, a land grab. Like, oh, we need a flat place to, to land that's 20 feet square or yeah. know, something, something like that, 20 feet on the side. Well, quickly realizing it's, it's more complicated than that, you know, there's quite a bit of uh, technical complexity that's involved. So as the industry has matured, so have we as, as a company, you know, we, we, we have quite a bit of technical expertise in, in-house now. And we're, uh, we're involved in, in many markets around the globe, headquartered in, in London. That's kind of where our technical team uh, resides. And, and we, do, we do have uh, commercial interests in, in the London market, but also in U.S., uh, Middle East, Singapore, France, Italy, Japan. So anywhere where we see AAM and, and EV tall operations launching early on, uh, that's where we have a, a presence. But yeah, back to your original question about us, us being a startup, it, we really founded you know roughly roughly five years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we've, we have great support have, from from strategic investors. You have venture uh, funding or VC funding? Uh, not much VC really. I mean, it's pri- frankly, it's primarily strategic uh, funders, okay. the likes of Group ADP, um, huge airport owner and operator in in France. Uh, similarly, F two I. Um, airport owner and operator in in Italy, um, Irelandia Aviation. That's the family office of the Ryan family. Yeah, Ryanair, mm-hmm. Allegiant, Viva Colombia, etc. So another one, Goodman Group. Uh, that they do real estate for logistics globally. So that's where almost the entirety of our funding comes from. Yes, it's great to to have the, the capital from them, but also they bring uh, a fantastic deal of expertise and, and synergies with their, with their core operations, both in infrastructure. And aviation uh, and and beyond. So um, mm-hmm. yeah, we feel really fortunate to have that um, that group of investors. Yeah, you mentioned actually one of the points that I had here in my list to ask you, um, and that's the technical complexity. Because well, this Evitol revolution, which is sold on the basis of convenience in part, uh, not only, but convenience plays a major role in in the appeal of this new way of uh, moving around. What are the requirements? Because uh, looking from the outside and without getting into the technical aspects, it looks like you don't need much to operate, mm-hmm. uh, to move around in one of those vehicles because you can take off and land pretty much from everywhere. It's pretty quiet in general, well, in general, and it's expected to be pretty quiet. We don't know if the, let's say, the regulation will also adapt to that or will still have the same uh, sort of framework that we have now in many places because of mm-hmm. uh, helicopters are, are noisy. So there, there are some restrictions there. So what is the, let's say, the barrier of entry to operating a network of such facilities? Because if you can take off and land from pretty much anywhere, what would prevent other operators if you have some space on a urban setting just to just set up, set up some basic facility? And maybe put some services, maybe put some, I don't know, some check-in counter or some bar or something like that and yeah. just allow these vehicles to take off and land. I don't know if it's a legal uh, restriction, a technical restriction, and how big is this barrier of entry? I think I'd, I'd agree in the, in the absence of a built environment, it's, it's, quite, it's quite simple. You know, if, if you're talking about just in an undeveloped area, picking out places to, to, to land and process people, it's pretty simple. Of course, that's not the that's not what we're dealing with. I mean, the whole point is to integrate this into the built environment. The denser the environment, the better, because that's higher demand and greater need for air taxi operations. So I, I think I, I think about the complexity on a, on a few different dimensions. One would be um, 
just development period. You, you think about dense cities and how hard it is to build something new in in those heavily populated uh, areas. Um, I come from the U.S., so I'm particularly kind of bringing a, a Western mindset to this, but uh, it's not easy to get development done in a place like Los Angeles. I mean, pe- people will say that t- time and again. So yeah. just fundamentally any kind of development. So that, that's one that's one barrier. It's non-trivial. An- another would be very much aviation related. Um, there's integration to the airspace that absolutely has to be considered. Um, not only obstacles, you know, the local environment right around the, the vertiport, but also just making sure the class of airspace you're dealing with and, and the other light routes that are nearby. You know, if you're near the LAX um, approach path, like that's going to be a problem as an example. So, so that's very much aviation uh, considered as well as just the safety of, of it itself, the size of the, the size of the FATA, you know, the size of the landing pad matters. The, the FAA has put out some, some design guidance and uh, in, in most U.S. states and, and cities that kind of fo- follow that guidance. So, so there's very much a, a, a aviation-related barrier to, to entry there. Another one I'd, I'd point out would be, um, like I call it physics or, you know, the, the power grid. Uh, you're talking about getting quite a lot of power on site. It's, you know, A, expensive, B, may just be unachievable to, to, some, to some locations mm-hmm. where you might other, otherwise consider uh, and then the last one here that I'll, I'll list, which is, isn't the last one uh, to, to consider, but last one I'll list for now would be just a consideration of the passenger journey. Sure, you can land on top of a, let's say, a skyscraper, for example. It might be very windy, so you might not want to from an aviation perspective. But let's say, let's say from an aviation perspective, you, you could. That passenger journey might be really bad, actually, because you're talking about going 60 stories up in an elevator that is shared with all the tenants in the building. And in order to get onto the rooftop, you're climbing a ladder and going through a hatch. None of those things actually are all that conducive to, to someone who ultimately just wants to save time. Uh, yeah. You might not save them that much time as a result. So, again, those are just you know a, a good a good deal. The, the factors to, to consider and the um, the complexities that in, in many cases are the coupled. You uh, impact your ability to do development somewhere. Uh, if you do it in a in a location that does have a good passenger journey versus not. And what about the, let's say, security restrictions? Right now at the airport, you have to allow for a considerable amount of time to go through all the security, check-in, etc. I don't know if that's also a requirement in the eVTOL experience. Uh, your vertiports are going to be, um, let's say, equipped to handle all these steps in a process, or you don't anticipate this to be a, a requirement in, in the case of the eVTOL experience? Yeah, I mean, I, w- I wish I could say, it, I wish I could say it's one answer globally, but it's not. It's very much a jurisdiction by jurisdiction uh, approach. In, in the US, so to use that as an example, the size of eVTOLs are under the threshold uh, above which the, the TSA has jurisdiction and, and does the passenger screening and, and so forth. So there would not be that requirement. And you would not need to go through any sort of metal detector or you know, formal screening in, in that sense in other jurisdictions like Singapore, uh, as an example, because it's aviation related and you're talking about accessing the airspace. They, they do have stricter controls and, and you do have to screen passengers in, in a similar way to what you'd have to do in a hub airport. So our goal is that we 
don't have to put passengers through that screening because it's of course a friction in their overall journey that they would prefer to to avoid. However, we do intend to put other measures in place to ensure that the overall security, the, the security of the overall system is still considered. For, for example, access control. Mm-hmm. If only the people who are, are ticketed and are escorted by a staff member are allowed onto the airfield, that does a lot by way of security, even if we haven't gone through the TSA level screening. So, that, you know, that's just one example, CCTV recording you know, yep. would, would be another one, that, that, that sort of thing. There's, there's a whole set of things that you can consider when it comes to, to security. But our, our goal certainly is to, to implement things in a way that have as low of a burden and a friction on the passengers as possible. Mm-hmm. Are there jurisdictions or cities or countries that are more, let's say, vertiport or eVTOL friendly than others? And I don't know if they can be named at this stage. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it, it sort of it sort of comes down to I don't want to say obvious factors, but in uh, let's let's sort of take one one major distinction would be if if you have kind of a a Western or you know a, a democratic free market in, environment where development can absolutely be influenced by feedback from the local community, that's going to be more challenging than than not. So. In the U.S., in most cities and states, there's the opportunity for local groups to protest or provide feed feedback, you know, for for any new development. I mean, completely unrelated to whether it's air taxis, any development whatsoever, uh, and that can really slow down the the development uh, process. Whereas, if you if you're talking about a, a place like uh, UAE in the Middle East, Dubai. That doesn't really exist in the same way. It's, you know, it's much more of a top-down centralized decision-making process where something is is going to be built. It's built. It doesn't matter so much if if the neighbors you know, pr- protest. So for early launch of, of something new like this, it really it does help to be somewhere where you can have much more centralized decision-making mm-hmm. uh, in, in, in a place like Dubai. Yeah, you actually, you announced... Um... A, a, a major project in, in Dubai recently, I think a few weeks ago. Um, I was it in April, I think, or something like that. Well, yeah, in, in February is when we kind February. of got um, we got a, approval from uh, um, His Highness um, Sheikh Mohammed in in Dubai for the the design of our our network uh, that we're building out in collaboration with the, the Roads and Transport mm-hmm. um, Authority there. Is this going to be the first major implementation of of your uh, you you know how you your concepts? Yeah, I mean w- within within Skyports, and, and if we're talking about sort of a, a net new network of of Vertiports, um, yes, we, we believe it'll be kind of the first full scale network of, of Vertiports in, in in the world uh, mm-hmm. that has commercial has commercial operations. Uh, and it's it's super helpful that you have a, a place that really likes to be innovative. Uh, Dubai is all about addressing innovative topics. They're willing to invest their 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 money and their broader resources behind it, and they can streamline that decision making process as, as as we just talked about relative mm-hmm. to to other places. So, how this network is going to work? Can you tell us a bit more about it? Yeah, so we've got four four locations. Uh, that at this stage um, we're, we're talking about launching in, in the early years. Um, the International Airport, so DXB, 
uh, Palm Jumeirah, downtown, and, and Dubai Marina. So those are the four locations, st- starting with DXB and, and Palm Jumeirah as kind of phase one. But yeah, we'll, we'll roll them out targeting uh, 2025, ready, ready for launch, at, at least for those, those first two. And then the others will come online after that. Ultimately, we're, we're looking at the, the, the broader you know, UAE as um, a, a longer term opportunity for a network. We think it's a, it's a great, great place to, to build a broader network. But mm-hmm. our, our partnership with the, the RTA has been, has been fantastic. Uh, and, and launching with them in, in Dubai, we feel like will be the best way to get operations and running. Are the air operators going to be ready by that date? Yeah. So, I mean, at, at this stage, Joby has been in, in talks with, with the RTA about operating there. Um, and they're, I think, widely regarded as kind of uh, the leader in terms of time to, time to certify uh, an eVTOL for, for operating. So absolutely the timing of when we invest and, and when we roll out, when we, when we launch will be metered based on the, the operator. You know, if, if it's Joby, it'll be you know, based on their timeline as an, as an example. Uh, both when they can when they can certify and then and then when they can produce an air the aircraft to 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 be put in market. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's why we say we're targeting twenty twenty five. But as is entirely the case with, with our business, generally speaking, Dubai or otherwise, it's it's very much metered by the the, the progress of the OEMs. So we work very closely to, to be hand in hand with them, so that we're not putting our business you know at, at too much risk. We need to absolutely invest on the the right timeline that matches up with their timeline to, to certification and commercialization. Mm-hmm. And let's say this goes ahead. Who's the best candidate for second uh, to follow suit with the uh, development rollout of Vertiports and eVTOL operations yeah, globally? Uh, the, the next market after yeah. that? Yeah. Uh, like okay. city or country that might yeah. follow. Oh, yeah. That's a good question. So we the fact that we feel like that's going to be sort of the first scaled network doesn't mean that we're not active in all in all those other mm-hmm. locations I mentioned earlier. We very much see what is happening in in Paris, heading up to the Olympics. Uh, yeah. That'll be a great showcase. That'll be yeah. a great showcase. Um, but that but that's 2024. Um, is it going to be ready by that early? Because that's even earlier than the dates we were discussing for for yeah. Dubai. So. I mean, frankly speaking, I can't comment on Volocopter's readiness to to launch it at that time. I, I know they're they're working hard. They they've they've done many flight demonstrations already. I've I've seen I've seen one. Uh, so I'm I'm confident they can, they can do something. I can't comment on. I I don't know exactly what that will yeah. entail at the, mm-hmm. at the time of the Olympics. But in any event, you know, I think it'll be great for for the industry. I think following following Dubai. Frankly speaking, it's a little bit hard to say uh, where, where we'll sit next. But just to take a bit of a, a U.S. view, I do think New York uh, will be relatively early in the grand scheme of things, just mm-hmm. because they have air taxi operations today. Blade, Flexjet, you know, they, they fly. Others are, are flying air taxis uh, from Manhattan to the airports and out to um, the Hamptons and Montauk. Uh, yeah. on on a on a daily basis like this last weekend uh in the US was Memorial Day weekend massive time for for people to be flying out to their vacation homes so can you just do a drop in replacement of some some helicopter operations for for eVTOL operations it's a little bit oversimplifying it for sure but to to a certain extent that will that will be possible and i think that you'll see 
some some pretty good uptake uh, from from the outset. Mm-hmm. Are you very ports all following the same? Um, is there like a standard design, or is something that is is custom made for each location? Well, I guess oh, there's always some level of customization, I guess, because of uh, the local conditions, whatever. But is there like a standard blueprint that you more or less try to adapt whenever possible? We have some pretty consistent design. We have a pretty consistent design philosophy, and we try to maintain as much consistency as possible in things like our software systems, our, our information systems that have less need to be adapted to, to the local environment. Like the shape of the airfield, for example. Yeah. As much as I'd say we we like to just copy paste that from one place to the next, that's that's not going to be possible in many situations because you're you're talking about fitting something into a constrained, dense urban environment, yeah. which by definition is going to come in different shapes and sizes mm-hmm. from one site to the next and, and one market to the next. Is, is so, there a, a standard size, more or less, or a minimum size requirement? Well, there is a minimum size requirement if you were to look at uh, guidelines put out by both FA and EASA on the the, the FATO, the final approach to take off the, la- the landing pad itself. So there's that can't go any smaller if, okay. if we're, if we're going to abide by those regulations. You can have many FATOs. You can have one FATO in, in many parking stands, which is generally speaking kind of like one FATO, three parking stands, stands like generally speaking a fairly efficient design. So that that alone will dictate the vast majority of the space take. The terminal itself is not going to be some massive grand terminal, you know, on mm-hmm. on par with Heathrow. It's, it's going to be much more utilitarian, and uh-huh. in and of itself, is not going to dictate a whole lot of the the space take. In a case like Dubai, what sort of sizes are we talking about in in terms of uh, surface involved? Yeah, I mean, if if you if you take those those various things into consideration, and it's sort of a, a medium sized uh, vertiport in terms of throughput. You're looking on the order of forty to fifty thousand square feet uh, minimum. Mm-hmm. Um, you could probably go down a little bit from there and maybe be constrained on number of stands or get creative with the size of the and shape of the terminal. And you can certainly go up from there uh, to 100, 120, 150,000 square feet if you want to really maximize you know as much throughput as possible so in a dense urban area that's a that's a, a fair bit of space but when you compare it to the size of of airports you know that's that's tiny in, in comparison and, and what amount of passengers are we talking about what's the sort of traffic that is expected can you service uh, several evitals at the same time also the sort of let's say land connections that you need to the rest of the network the, the transport network yeah First and foremost, in the early years, we're gonna we're gonna be supply constrained by aircraft. I would say uh, it's it's gonna be you know, l- less about um, really really busy um, vertiports ports because we have um, so many aircraft. More about um, the constraint of the number of aircraft. But over time, that will that will that balance will shift, and that's part of the reason why we put in a lot of effort to design uh, vertiports ports that are as efficient and high, high throughput as possible. If if you're getting on on the order of five to you know, upwards of ten, ten landings an hour, let's say, uh, we're talking about roughly four passengers per per aircraft. So you can start to do the math on on the number of passengers that we're, we're talking about at, at any given site. It's not going to replace mass transit. I mean, the, just the number of people you can put in in a metro train compared to the number of people you can put in an aircraft are, are radically different. It's not mm-hmm. going to take thousands of cars off the road. Uh, but we do think it'll be 
a, a beneficial part and complement the overall transport network. It's utilizing underutilized asset being the, the airspace. It's no operating emissions. It's it's quiet. So we feel like it has a place in the broader transport system, even if the numbers aren't going to be quite quite on par with some other you know parts of transportation in the city. Mm-hmm. What's a sort of investment that you need to set up one vertical port in a let's say um, uh, let's take the example of Dubai for example of this uh, order of magnitude? Yeah, I hate giving the answer of it depends, but that's sort of what it is here because you can talk about a very small ground-based uh, version that's little more than a, a piece of concrete, a charger, and a, a shed for, for someone to walk through. Or you can talk about a raised structure, just because it might need to be given the location it's, it's placed, with a very large airfield and quite a bit of amenities inside, inside the terminal. We very much try to take the approach of being cost-efficient uh, and reducing the landing fees for our, our cult customer so they can ultimately bring the cost down for the passenger and, and really catalyze this market for the masses. So we don't try to go uh, a grand if we don't uh, have to for some reason. But as, as a result of all those all those various factors and, and the fact that you're building it within an existing built environment, uh, you can be talking about something that ranges from as low as a few million dollars up to you know north of $20 million dollars if it's if it, if you have to build a, an underlying structure that it's on top of um and so forth so that's that would not be typical you know it'd be much typically typically be much less than that but when you sort of compare that to airports once again we're talking about much smaller so it's much smaller in space much smaller investment than than airports as well really meant to be fit for purpose for for this market mm, i see okay so You have all these uh, plans around the world to uh, set up this uh, physical infrastructure, but there's another aspect I would like to ask you about, and that's the IT and the systems. Because on your website, you said that you mentioned that as one of your, your um, let's say, key differential points. Are you guys also developing the IT that supports all this type of operation? Yeah, absolutely. Because we will be operating um, these assets on a go-forward basis. Uh, we're, we're building the technology behind that to uh, to enable those operations. It, it's kind of like three three different pillars uh, as, as we think of it. First is the identity management, so ensuring appropriate access control for for passengers to come in and out of the the Vertiport terminal and onto the air, airfield. That's that's first. Um, second is the situational awareness, and that's really about safety around. On the Vertiport, making sure that we understand um, that there's clear FATO, the stands are, are clear, the, the, the vicinity, the, the very uh, nearby airspace, uh, understanding if there are, are uh, other aircraft or even drones that, that might, might be going through it, as well as things like weather, weather stations and camera feeds, um, which, which we'll share with our um aircraft operator partners. Then the third is the resource management and scheduling system. Uh, and that's that's scheduling the, the resources on the ground. So the availability of a stand for an aircraft to come and, and park and, and recharge at it. Um, the availability of a staff member to, to go uh, help out somewhere. You know, importantly, the availability of a FATO for someone to, to come in and land. So that's that's not dispatching flights, to be, to be very clear. That, that's the role of the aircraft operator. But it's for us to say, 
whether or not there's a slot available for them at, at the vertical port. So those are those kind of the three main pillars that we think of. And then there's, of course, all of the enabling IT infrastructure behind it. Uh, and we have uh, developers and um, other um, IT engineers on staff that are helping us to, to build that, that entire system, the, the remote operations of, of VertiPorts as well, so that we can minimize the, the, the burden in any individual location and enable us to, to really operate uh, from a central location as much as possible. Okay, so you are like a software company as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we certainly work hard to make sure that what we're developing is driven by the needs of our of our customers and, and um, the regulators and the environment we're operating in. But absolutely, we're um, we're developing our our own suite of um, software and integrations with with existing software too uh, to to make it a bespoke solution for people that wish to let's say, keep on top of what's going on in this field, what would be the, let's say, the next milestones that you would say we should be looking for, uh, both for Bert reports and for the industry in general? Yeah, on the infrastructure side, we're, we're hard at work in those, those, look, those markets that I, that I mentioned. Um, so milestones that you'll, that you'll hear and see about will, will be uh, confirmed locations that, that have been identified and, uh, and have some degree of approval um, from from the local authorities, um, so I, I think that's something that you should expect to be seeing and hearing about in in some of the the, the major launch markets globally in, in the next couple of years. But importantly, as I also mentioned, the the pace at which uh, we can and, and should advance on the Vertiport side is, is very much dictated by the the progress towards certification and commercialization of the the aircraft themselves. So I'd say. You know, watching as those those aircraft uh, make their way towards towards certification, which they're on a great path now. The regulators have been really in, engaged, uh, as far as as we can tell, and, and helpful in, in outlining a clear roadmap for them. Um, but seeing seeing those uh, eVTOL OEMs tick through their certification uh, roadmap will really be what also helps dictate the, the timeline for the vertiports as well. And for the skyports in particular, are there specific milestones that you are expecting in the near future? Yeah, you know, we we've built a, we've really built a world class team over the past uh, few years, uh, and and we uh, plan to continue to, to, to grow that team. Um, we closed our Series B in, in 2022. Uh, we'll embark on our next round of fundraising uh, by, by the end of this year uh, to continue growing the team and, and start some of those initial uh, developments. Um, How much are you raising? Um, you know, it'll be a little bit dependent on the feedback we get from the market. Um, it's sort of widely known that it's a, it's a tough funding environment out there. So so we'll um, we'll react to to what the the market will bear and what our existing um, shareholders are interested in, but it'll be on the order of um, fifty two hundred million USD, most likely. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd say I'd say for us, it's about you know continuing to uh, to grow that team um, judiciously um, to focus on those those launch markets as, as I mentioned where we have opportunities for, for more near-term development um, like Dubai uh, to, to, be, to be pouring our, our time and investment into, into that. And then also to, um, to continue on with uh, existing commercial operations where, where possible. I, I didn't mention this, but we, we own and operate a heliport 
in London itself. Um, so that you are us, operating already. Yeah, it's 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 a heliport. It's it's traditional helicopters. Um, one one of two civil heliports in in the city of London. Okay. So um, is so there us, is there some know how that you are uh, deriving from this operation that you plan to apply to the Evitol sector? Absolutely, absolutely, and that's that's a key part of our strategy uh, is to is to translate that that know how into Evitel Ops, which which in, in many ways will, will be quite similar, um, but it helps us understand things like working with the local community because it's right in the middle of a residential area and helicopters are quite loud. Um, what about exactly? It's located. It's it's right. It's uh, very close to Canary Wharf. Okay, right on the Thames. Okay, um, so. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we we learn about kind of the the local integration, working with working with regulators, uh, working with the the operators of the aircraft them, themselves. There there are customers um, mm -hmm. developing a non aeronautical revenue strategy. Um, so just just to name a few, um, safety uh, in in airfield operations. Um, mm -hmm. So so quite a, quite a few things that we have the opportunity to learn through that. Okay, and before we wrap it up. What is the best online resource that where people can go to and and learn about skyboards? Uh, please remind us your your website, or I don't know if there are other channels that you would recommend as well. Yeah, no, our web our website's a great place to to track what's uh, what's going on. We'll we'll post uh, news and press releases there. So it's uh, skyports.net, and then we're we're also present at at conferences and industry events like the Paris Air Show. We'll we'll have a booth there uh as as an example and other major industry gatherings uh we we tend to be a part of. So um would would love to to be in touch with, with anyone who's interested in in learning more. Uh but I'd, I I kind of point you to those two resources to start. Excellent. Well thank you so much Alison for very um for this very comprehensive overview of this very interesting and emerging industry. Uh, I'm, I'm sure we're going to hear, I, we're going to keep hearing a lot more about mm -hmm. in, in the coming years. Thank you so much. Before you go, and if you like this podcast, a quick reminder that it would be absolutely great if you could please give it a rating on Apple, Spotify, or whichever platform you're using, or recommend it to a friend or whomever might be interested. Thank you very much, and see you soon. Mm -hmm.